What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Conspiranormal. Okay, welcome to Conspiranormal, guys. It's your host, Adam Sane, and Serfiel is here. Welcome back. And uh, we've got uh, an interesting guest for you guys tonight on a rather interesting topic. The whole concept of mimetic warfare. And uh, that is someone that uh, Serfiel and I, we've made the acquaintance of this gentleman, Jose Herrera. Jose, thank you for coming on uh, Conspiracy Normal. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Jose, I just, uh, to start off, and this I think will we'll lay a, a good um, background to what we're going to talk about. I want to talk about just your background in the military and like where you've served and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. All right, Roger that. So in uh, 2005, I went ahead and was enrolled in what's called the pulley program. And the pulley program was just a kind of like a uh, precursor uh, mentorship process prior to actually going into the Marine Corps. Um, so around 2003, I was sitting at a McDonald's and I was watching the initial invasion of Iraq go down. And I immediately knew that like, that's what I wanted to do. I always had like this innate urge to, I was just always attracted to that kind of stuff. Um, the branch of service that I went into was the Marine Corps. Um, I contracted into what's called an O3 uh, contract, which is, the O3 subfield or the military occupational specialty um, is known as a uh, like infantry guys. So I went to school for uh, an O311, which is a Marine rifleman. 
And after I graduated uh, boot camp and what they call School of Infantry, which is like a two and a half month course, um, I was given orders to the East Coast. Uh, I thought I was going to be on the West Coast, but uh, me and about 100 Marines got sent to a unit called 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. And it's known as 2-8 America's Battalion. Around 2006, 2nd Marine Division began to kind of take over operations in Iraq and uh, my first combat tour was um, Ramadi, Iraq, in Al-Ambar province. And after that, I did two more combat tours. Um, one was the initial invasion of Helmand province in 2009. And then once again, into a place called Karizi Saidi, which was in Helmand province. And we called that location Crazy City. And it was called Crazy City because it was one of the most kinetic AOs or area of operations of that time period. After uh, getting out September 27, 2011, I kind of uh, had like a rough patch where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. After three back-to-back -back combat tours, I was pretty beat, so kind of wanted to lay low for a little bit. Uh, little did I know that my body was gonna kind of break down on me, and it did. And uh, I was forced to change my career uh, expectations. So I enrolled into the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And for about two years, I kind of wandered around from department to department until I, I found my way into the philosophy and religion department, mm. where I ended up befriending the department chair, Dr. George Dervos. There I met Dr. Diana uh, Walsh, formerly uh, Dr. Pasulka mm -hmm. and uh, kind of went under a mentorship uh, with them and still am under a mentorship with them. And then once again, after I graduated uh, from uh, the PARS department in uh, 2016, I made another decision to go back overseas, but in a different capacity. Um, there was a company that was called Blackwater uh, that kind of had a, an incident uh, I think it was Nisau Square in 2007, where essentially a bunch of Iraqi civilians got killed. Well, they ended up doing a, a name change and it became ZXE, and then it became Academy. Um, I went ahead and wrote up a bio, sent in my resume. And from 2017 to 2018, um, I was uh, what you would call a, a personal security specialist for American diplomats. And uh, I worked both the red zone and the green zone. Uh, did a little bit of work with the Phantom team, kind of doing low pro operations, and then uh, eventually back into the green zone, uh, just protecting American diplomats. After, uh, so I had an experience, of, I had a lot of experiences throughout my time in service, but uh, 2018 was pretty bad uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan. So what the mainstream media doesn't tell you is that around that time period, there was around 14 to like 20 different uh, cells, terrorist cells operating within Kabul City. And Kabul City is an overpopulated uh, city that only has an infrastructure for, I, I want to say around like 400 to 500,000 people. So every attack that took place within Kabul, it, you know, basically obliterated uh, you know, a large portion of the population because everything was just so dense. 
And so I'm not used to, I, I mean, I'm very used to kinetics. Like it's not a big deal, but uh, I had this little voice uh, tell me, uh, hey, Jose, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. And part of the reason why I went back because I wanted closure from my last combat tour. A lot of bad stuff went down and I just kind of wanted to end that chapter of my life. And I thought by going back out there, I might go ahead and find it. Uh, what I ended up finding was, you know, the little voice in my head saying it's time to go back home. And so I had the opportunity to come back home. I ended my contract and I enrolled again back into UNCW. And it was around that time where Dr. Walsh was about to publish her book. And uh, there was a portion in there that was that she had written about in terms of <clears throat> the sixth sense or this uh, kind of uh, ability to have this knowing uh, referencing some of the individuals within uh, her book. And then along yeah. with the pragmatic side of you're talking about American cosmic. Yes, I am. So I'll back it up real quick. So the reason why I got into uh, the philosophy and religion department and the reason why I pursued the phenomena was uh, I was trying to find the language or the framework to really articulate what was happening within the operational field and within the veteran demographic side of things, namely suicide. And so everything that led up to 20, 2019 um, sounded a bit freaking crazy, man. It was like, uh, and what was crazy about it is, is that I came to a kind of uh, arc within this narrative in my book and the underlying factor that's contributing to suicide, suicide contagion, or the social contagion within the veteran demographic um, has to deal with psi, the psi phenomena. Okay. And that when one of these, so part of the social contagion and the suicide contagion is that the experts will say that there is a complexity of issues that goes with why this is occurring. And I'm making the claim through observations of ontology, quasi-religious properties, an examination of what I would call the weaponization of love going back all the way to Greeks, formulating this kind of hypothesis saying that there's this kind of metaphysical realm where Psy exists in a very pragmatic way, but that there's also a kind of connection and that, that once this connection is dissevered, whether it's through a death in combat or whether it's through suicide, that's why you have the suicide contagion. And what's happening within the veteran demographic is not isolated. It's actually happening all around the world right now. And that's what leads into narrative warfare and mimetic warfare. Um, so I created, a, I created what's called the meta war paradigm. And essentially the meta war paradigm, or at least meta wars, the final form of human destruction. And so our, our institutions, um, everyone in the United States is under a deliberate attack by these higher forms of warfare. Uh, two, they're very vulnerable and they need to adapt to this new paradigm. If not, 
we're really going to be in a very bad spot within the next 20 to 40 years. And if you look at the old kinds of propaganda, namely through uh, the defector Yuri uh, Bezmenov, he goes to like four stages where essentially in 1985, he did an interview and he stated that at that point in time, the demoralization process, which is like a 15 to 30 year process to kind of undermine democracy or at least embed your agents and do what's called ideological subversion has taken place. And you kind of see a consistency throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s of this kind of taking place. Like around the 1940s and 50s when the Cold War began to really kick off, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, was already infiltrated by the Communist Party. And then you had the rise of McCarthyism, which kind of essentially created this uh, fear, uh, this fearful atmosphere where at any one point in time, specific members within the United States government were kind of providing, uh, you know, uh, information to the Communist Party back in Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, it failed. It failed miserably. And since then, through Yuri Bezmov's model, uh, demoralization, destabilization, crises, and then normalization, um, it's all been rooted. And so you have what we call in, you know, the mimetic warfare aspect, a pathogenic meanplex. And I know a lot of folks will say, well, there's nothing really bad about communism or socialism, seemingly that we have programs within the United States that are socialist programs, namely welfare, health, uh, certain kinds of healthcare benefits, uh, libraries and so forth. And it's not, and that's not that, that those things are bad. It's just that there are some ideas within that framework that become pathogenic. They become viral and they begin to infect. And the people who abide by those ideals um, end up becoming vectors and spreading, you know, disinformation, misinformation. Okay. So I'm kind of trying to put my head around this a little bit. Um, this whole social can social contagion aspect that you're talking about when the, in the use of uh, psi psi. Uh, so you're basically saying that essentially within warfare within a group, these these soldiers they can form a bond with each other, and if one but later they come home, get back into normal, I guess, quote unquote, normal society. And one of them uh, commits suicide. Are you saying that that bond is what creates that kind of that contagion to occur? Yes, that's one of them. That's okay. one of the contributing factors. Yeah. And then is it is there also an element to um, like, you know, there's a lot of. I guess just like popular conception and mainstream stuff about the theater creating this like heightened sense of consciousness. Are you saying that like Psy is part of that and that when they leave the theater, then they're kind of disconnected from this um, kind of spirit, more spiritual world that they had. And that kind of leads to a feeling of emptiness also. Yeah. So one of the, let me, let me, let me, let me put it this way. So in terms of narrative warfare, which narrative warfare conceptualizes this idea of identity 
meaning, content, and structure. Uh, think of narrative warfare as more so like a strategic story. And that memetics, right, the use of specific units of information, whether it be from pop culture or whether it be from certain kinds of war frameworks, is then disseminated within an information ecosystem. Well, mm-hmm. too much of that causes, on top of the pre-existing issues that psychographics and AI machine learning already give a user. So our brains, so the science behind smartphones is like every 15 minutes, your body starts to release cortisol because you really want to check your phone and that the smartphone kind of acts like a, a jack slot yes. or a slot machine, right? And so over right. periods of time, cortisol begins to wreak havoc on your brain. And on top of the psychographics, the AI machine learning, narrative warfare, mimetic warfare, give an individual user or a target population a pretty much steroidal effect. It's like blasting people by allowing the hormone cortisol to go ahead and just essentially uh, just bombard and eventually cause millions of microchain reactions, essentially sequencing, you know, uh, excessive or deficient behaviors uh, leading to uh, mayhem and chaos. So when cortisol uh, begins to impact your, your hippocampus, your amygdala, eventually your, your too much cortisol can shrink the brain, right? And the prefrontal cortex takes a huge blow. And the prefrontal cortex um, is associated with learning memories, um, stress control, and decision-making processes. And so when you're able to subvert the decision-making process of an individual or target population, or even your government, then the mind can no longer function as is. And so what we're really talking about here is just the surface level stuff that, that yeah, we, we, the American public do know about, but it gets into a deeper issue and that's a philosophical one. And so, as I said before, the meta-war paradigm, which does encapsulate narrative warfare and meta-warfare, um, has a lot to deal with, a lot of the deficiencies and the degradation that's taking place within the Marine Corps specifically. And so I give a kind of uh, narrative where moral incompatibility, essentially moral standards have kind of transformed into procedural mechanical processes. And when you examine the Marine Corps, it's very Aristotelian uh, in nature. And what that means is to have a virtue ethics system where everything is about balance, context. You can't be too excessive. You can't be too deficient. And I, in my memoir, I wrote about a specific virtue. Um, it's called Aristotelian friendship. And eventually I translate that as, as brotherhood or sisterhood. Well, when you dig deep into Aristotle's friendship for its own sake, uh, this construct, there's a metaphysical element. And that's what I say is the driving factor that one allows psi abilities to manifest within the Marine Corps. So when you study the Marine Corps, 
um, it takes on these monastic properties, mm -hmm. right? And these quasi-religious properties, it's essentially a cult. Mm -hmm. And so we have doctrine, we have saints, we have a regimen, we fast. And the areas in which we operate are so remote and so isolated that the body essentially cleans itself and there are no uh, toxins that can get in your body. So yeah, you do develop a heightened sense, but just to demystify uh, these processes, uh, pop culture says that, you know, the body has five senses, right? And then every once in a while, somebody will talk about telepathy and bring up premonitions or precognitions and we'll be like, oh yeah, intuition, that's a sixth sense. But in fact, the body has around 21 or 22 different senses. And operations, the way they weaponize Psy is they give you a precursor format. And back in my day, uh, they, it went through several evolutions. And part of that was to keep it out of, you know, the public's eye, but also to go ahead and kind of really hone in on what's allowing Psy to take place. And for us, it was called tactical profiling. And then in 2006, it became the combat hunter program where they essentially taught us how to read the human dimension, which encapsulated six domains. Those domains were kinesics, biometrics, proxemics, geographics, iconography, and then most importantly, atmospherics. And so what eventually would take place is the combination of these quasi-religious properties, these regimens, the weaponization of love and this doctrine along with our training was it would create a synchronicity matrix. And so in my memoir, I write about a specific moment in time where I ended up figuring out kind of this, this uh, synchronicity or this kind of a uh, connection um, the way we operated uh, was in eight-man teams on my third combat tour. So very small unit uh, tactics and operations. Um, and I had a really good friend. His name is uh, uh, Sergeant Garrison or Joseph M. Garrison. Uh, he was killed June 6, 2011. Um, he was killed by an IED. And so we, so June 5th, I kind of got these really bad premonitions that something bad was going to happen. June 6th, it became even worse. And then uh, that day, we were after two Taliban fighters pushing to a location called Charlie Bravo 22, which we call the playground. And we called it the playground because that's where all gunfights took place. And so we essentially, we saw this transition of atmospheric change. So everything became a ghost town and we kind of knew that we were going to be in the shit. Um, so the way we operate sometimes, because there's a high IED threat, uh, and IED stands for improvised explosive device. So sometimes we take rat lines and we have to do like this single file line so that the sweeper, um, who, who was Danny, it has this metal detector that's able to pick up metallic kits from the ground. And whenever you hit an IED, it kind of gives off a distinct sound. And Danny got a metallic hit. And so our standard operating procedure was depending on how many guys we have on the patrol and depending on where we're at, you know, you got to set up what's called a cordon or a perimeter. So I went ahead up and set a cordon 
180 degree cord into our rear end. Sergeant Garrison told Danny to push back and I pushed forward around 10 to 15 meters uh, before getting to Sergeant Garrison. The IED goes off and my brother gets blown into a gazillion pieces. I eventually pick up what's left of them. I bring them back. I end up having to call a medevac bird. And, and this is the moment, you know, whenever we dropped off uh, Joe to the medevac, I pushed back to the perimeter and the bird took off. And as the bird was kind of like disappearing into the horizon, I felt this thing leave my body, like this physical thing leave my body. And for the first time, I never felt so fucking empty. And so for a very long time, I want to say around like six years, I thought I lost my soul. Hmm. And then I entered the philosophy and religion department, met Dr. Uh, Pasulka and the project that she was doing. And I began to piece together what had taken place. And so that's how Psy kind of is able to manifest itself within uh, the battle space. Mm -hmm. And so when you come out to, you know, what we call civilian life, you're entering a, ve a very kind of epistemic, nihilistic, tribalistic yeah. framework. You know what I mean? There, there's no standard of judgment. No one operates off of a virtue ethics system. It's like a jungle of craziness. Mm. And so the rise in the advent of technologies has really alienated people. It's isolated people. Mm -hmm. um, the lack of emotional intelligence from younger generations, the lack of sociability and the rising polarization has created these atmospheres where typically guys who are team guys um, can no longer reap the benefits of, of being in sync with one another. And so what, you know, what the experts call PTSD may in fact be something else entirely, specifically from the psi phenomena point of view. And so my purpose in life is to bring psi into mental health and use it as a framework to deter and prevent suicide and mental health deterioration while reinforcing our institutions with a new paradigm. That's absolutely fascinating, Jose. And I mean, everyone's familiar with the first earth battalion, the men that stare at goats, that kind of stuff. Um, as these, you know, weird uh, theoretical uh, military futures uh, that, you know, were, were proposed where people would use, where soldiers would use things like Psy, but in effect, you're saying that it's already uh, parts of the military are already pretty much operating on that level. Oh yeah. We use it all the time. And that's the thing. Um, we, it's an everyday thing that we use. It's not this, you know, mystical thing that we have to create a doctrine. The, the, so the biggest issue and I'm and, you know, my book is broken up into three parts and I go into it in the second part which is what I call a critical analysis of fourth and fifth generation war fighting. And so the, the war theorists uh, proclaim that fourth generation 
and fifth generation are kind of obsolete uh, constructs. It's merely prescription. They're trying to prescribe uh, what they're seeing on the ground today. And so what I'm saying in terms of war is that these, these constructs have been constantly used. So there's different forms of warfare that have been used throughout time and history. And all they're simply doing is being repackaged with technology. And so that's the way, you know, and Psy goes all the way back to, I, I go all the way back to the Greeks with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why, you know, if you do a kind of anthropology with the, the ancient Greece, like King Philip brought in uh, Aristotle to teach young Alexander a uh, school of thought. And somehow that had to had trickled into, you know, his 30,000 man army of Greek hoplites which eventually kind of went into the Hellenistic worldview. And not only that, you still had like the sacred band, which were 300 male lovers who were the elite war fighting group that kind of brought down the Spartans. Mm -hmm. They weaponized love. I mean, if, you know, the raw aspect of it and all we've done in the military is simply create a doctrine to create a kind of pseudo uh, uh, raw love, but it's more so a doctrinated love where the same abilities can arise from. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that when you're transitioning, let's say from fourth to fifth with an emphasis on technology, these very ancient or these very holistic or organic properties become procedural to the point where no one can recognize the original reference to why people did that. And so you kind of enter this spectacle or this hyper reality where we lose the original function of why this stuff was even there in the first place. And there's a, there's a history about Psy and how they're using it now, which it's kind of funny um, in mainstream ops, the, the book that the Office of Naval Research completed in, I think, around 2017, which is called Perspective-Taking or Cultural Sense-Making. And that's another thing is that they change the the rhetoric or at least the verbiage uh, all the time. So you never really know what you're looking at. And so they call it sense-making now. And so essentially, it's a 23-page manual that highlights things like mindfulness which goes into meditation <laughs> um, and it encapsulates things like cultural awareness. Uh, and so it's essentially the same thing that Marines have been doing and warfighters have been doing since warfighting began. Right. That's uh man, that's fascinating stuff. Well, the main concern would just be like, if it, if it works, not uh, necessarily having to understand uh, all the theory behind it in more like academic sense or something like that. Like if the military is concerned with what actually works. Yeah. So there's a few things with that. So I have a really big issue with the ethical aspects of teaching people how Psy is weaponized. And so in my meta war paradigm, I have this portion called the meta human portion. And right now and throughout history, U.S. governments and even just 
individual actors have used extraordinary abilities to cause harm and chaos. And so if you were to blanket and teach every known person within the United States, you know, this framework, the potential to weaponize it and use it against authorities or use it against the general population would be and could be detrimental. And so you got to be very careful when you tread those lines. And the other aspect is, um, so I'm going to be very careful with what I say here. So I, yeah. I, pre- I presented a, an incident report to include my own thoughts on what's taking place with Sai, And I sent it up to um, my mentor, Dr. Walsh, when she sent it up to some folks. And essentially, I, may, I, I essentially call out the scientific community by saying the body knows a controlled environment. It knows a controlled lab setting. The only way you're going to figure out whether size legitimate is by actually going into a real-time operating uh, framework, going to real-time ops and test biofeedback, create the administration and see and watch for effects because it depends on the real world consequences. And so whether that's ever going to take place, I don't know, but that's kind of my goal as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you're in a unique place to really uh, look at the evolution of warfare. And I want to kind of lay down um, this concept of memetics for people who may not really understand it um, before we really get into what has happened um, you know, the last few years with memes and memetics, mean meme warfare, and what you call narrative warfare and meta war. So, what what are what are memes for people who may not understand? And also to kind of differentiate too, Jose, the idea of like, but that may not be familiar with these terms, like what kinetic means and the difference between the two. Okay, yeah. So, um, in terms of kinetics, you know. Uh, so the difference between kinetics and non-kinetics. So in typical military operations, kinetics would be things that go boom. Gunfights, bombs, uh, using some kind of physical force. And non-kinetics goes into the frameworks of um, influence operations and information operations, which kind of breaks down into psychological operations okay. um, and cyber warfare and all that stuff. Yeah, I was about to ask you if psychological did fit in that category. It does. And it's also part of the, of, of I guess, counterinsurgency operations too, right? Yes, it is. So typical psyops, what you see in the mainstream is um, – either right before an operation, you'll see a leaflet drop. So they'll send in what's called the C-130 and they'll drop a bunch of leaflets, physical paper memes, uh, trying to convey a narrative that the American forces are good or that the terrorists or the bad actors are really bad. And so we're trying to influence the local population. Um, and that's kind of what counterinsurgency operations uh, encapsulated was this hearts and minds aspect to it, which was also, there's a lot of argument whether that worked or not. And the way David Petraeus kind of formulated it, 
was from a French colonialist, um, David Galula, who, if you do the, the real hard studies, like Sean McFay, in order for coin operations to really work, you really have to decimate the target audience or the population. And, you know, we're a democracy or at least a constitutional federal republic, whatever you want to call it. And there's just certain things that you can't do in war. So leave it up to troops to try to recondition themselves to do this hearts and minds mission, which has been very, very, very difficult. And so psychological operations not only works in the leaflet capacity, uh, they also use it to essentially uh, blast uh, propaganda. So in my, my last combat tour in Karizi Saidi, I did some work with some PSYOPs guys. And one of the last missions was to uh, essentially build a schoolhouse for these Afghan kids. The only problem was is that you had Taliban units within that area that would come to the little village and do what's called an intimidation campaign. And if any of the kids or any of the families allowed their kids to go to school, the Taliban would kill them. And so after uh, a day of trying to locate an actual teacher and getting into a gunfight, we did what's called a follow-on mission. And PSYOPs eventually just talked a bunch of crap to the Taliban to piss them off. And the reason why we're doing that was so that we could get an emotional reaction so that the following day they would slip up. And if you know anything about war or fighting, you never go into a battle angry. That's where you slip up. And that's what we were trying to do. And that's kind of how PSYOPs works. So if you look at like a case study, uh, there's a there's this culture based off of like the Ashwang, which is like a vampire. And I think I think it was in the Philippines. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But the Ashwang is this vampire. So what they did was there was a, an enemy patrol. They got the last guy. They put two holes in his neck to make it seem like the Ashwang vampire bit into his neck. Then they turned him upside down. Yeah, this was. Them- this was to fight the Muslim, I think, uh, separatists in the, the South Philippines. Yeah, I think you're right. I think yes. Edward Lansdale was part of this. Yeah. This is probably like the 40s and 50s. Yes. And then you get into Vietnam, you see something like that. Well, here's the thing in terms of mimetic warfare. Uh, we can't really do that against uh, superpowers. So... In 2014, President Obama kind of, he, he stopped all combat operations. And we kind of saw this transition within our military efforts within Department of Defense, where we transitioned into what's called um, great power competition or interstate strategic competition. Essentially, terrorism wasn't really our main focus point. It was the fact that Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, we're now able to contest with the United States on a global scale. And those particular countries, fellas, have state-controlled media. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is with state-controlled media, you can't do the exact same thing that's being done to us. Right. But I have a solution to that. 
uh, and I can kind of explain at least a general aspect to how we do that. But before I, I do that, um, I, I should talk about memes a little bit. So, so, so memes are the selfish gene, which was written by uh, Dawkins in, I think, 76. Um, he essentially uh, said that genes or memes are like genes. They're, they're, they're replicators. Um, they're all the things that ideas come from. Um, we're, they're the basic building blocks of our brains. And there's benign memes, there's pathogenic memes, and it's essentially a unit of information. Um, if you were to take the Daniel C. Dennett outlook of memes, um, he would give you a more of an epidemiological virus kind of narrative where memes are like uh, parasites. They're very, very sticky. They, they, they attach to a host. And sometimes the stickiness or sometimes the, the depending on how dangerous the idea is, um, it could make you act against your own interests, your own biological imperative. And so he gives an example of, uh, of a fluke, uh, fluke parasite. Um, in order for fluke parasites to, to live, uh, they have to uh, make their way into like cows and sheep. But every once in a while, they'll transition into another um, entity. Uh, and he gives an example of an ant. Uh, say one day you're in a field, you see some ants, but you see one ant just going up this like leaf and it keeps falling, but it keeps on climbing. And then you begin to ask yourself, well, what's going on there? Well, the, the parasite, the flukeworm has um, created suicidal behaviors. And so ideas like freedom or communism or capitalism or Islam or truth, those kinds of ideas can make people act against their own biological interests and other interests for other interests. And so depending on the stickiness and depending on the kinds of visuals, the kinds of narratives and the kinds of things that are attached to those memes, um, it, it can make you um, obsolete. It renders the genome obsolete. But if you took, took that same framework from Susan Blackmore's perspective, she kind of gives a different narrative. So she takes the same outlook that Darwin, uh, from, from uh, uh, Darwinism, um, that natural selection allowed for all these adaptations to take place, which eventually uh, gave life to the gene, which eventually gave life to things like Neanderthals. And then the second replicator, which was artificial selection, the transfer and the imitation of ideas uh, became. So things like making a fire mm -hmm. and how to maintain a fire. Well, now that we're in this kind of information age, she kind of gives a different narrative that we're creating what's called uh, uh, teams or dreams techno memes. But the thing with teams is that very much like humans gave birth or kind of gave way to this uh, second replicator of memes, the techno meme um, is going to begin to self-replicate its own self, namely AI. 
And so throughout, you know, Dawkins' time to, to this time where Blackmore gives these different narratives, um, essentially memes are just ideas that build our current world today. And those ideas, if manipulated um, and weaponized, can subvert an individual or entire populations. So what is mimetic warfare? Mimetic warfare. So mimetic warfare is meant to denigrate, disrupt, and subvert the psychological space of a target population. So it's essentially using the same, it's essentially using either a smartphone or a computer or a laptop or what Major Prosser wrote back in 2008, creating a meme warfare center to disseminate specific kinds of either pop cultural references, um, crises type memes that kind of give an emotional reaction from a specific target audience or target population. And all that, all those memes are all, the bombardment of those memes comes from either a bad actor or a state power which uses a very specific strategic narrative. So coming from uh, Mr. Paul Cobal, Special Operations and Dr. Ajit Mon, who really take the horn on narrative warfare, they give an example of Russia. And so Russia, Russia's strategic narrative uh, is this. Russia is still a very decisive, honorable, and strong country. And that the West is immoral, it's divisive, and in decline. And then it can use uh, state-sponsored uh, web brigades or a troll factory to disseminate memes, develop human assets, and use a kind of hybridity that does encapsulate psychological operations, ideological subversion, and memes to sow division or engineer a population to think a certain way. And the sad thing is, is that our entire cyber infrastructure with AI machine learning, with psychographics, allows us to be that much more uh, effective. Is, is that making sense? Yeah, it makes, per it, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And of course, the events leading up to the 2016 election that were exposed um, is really what woke most people up to this as far as uh, the, the Internet Research Agency. Can you talk about the uh, Internet Research Agency and uh, what its main goals were and some of its methods? Absolutely. Um, before I go into that, I should explain this. So... So right now, the way that the superpowers are operating is what they call gray zone tactics. And so this is kind of the, the message for Americans in terms of education. Um, conventional warfare is kind of inert. Uh, some people say that it's dead. Mm -hmm. And conventional war where, you know, state-based armies go to battle with one another, those days are over. The last declared war was in World War II. Right. And ever since then, we've only had authorized military force. 
And we've seen major increases um, within armed conflicts throughout the world. And for the past 20 years, uh, state-based actors have watched and adapted to the Department of Defense. And they figured out that the American military is still superior, so they will not engage us in a conventional format. So everything has shifted below the threshold of warfare. And so they call that gray zone tactics. Right. Before in the past, it would have been referred to as like fifth columnism or something like that. That or Cold War tactics. Yeah. Um, And that's the thing about all of this stuff is that there's so much literature. There's so many uh, acronyms. There's so many prescription-based things that the American people doesn't understand what's taking place. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we got up to the IRA, the Internet Research Agency. And so, so around 2013, 2014, there was a series of things that ended up taking place that ended up highlighting uh, the inevitable kind of unveiling of the IRA and what Russia was doing and uh, gray zone tactics. So Russia plausibly denied that they invaded Crimea. Uh, They told the world that they didn't, but yet they had special forces down there, Spetsnaz. Mm -hmm. Um, And what was unique about the Crimea incident was um, the Russians used what the Americans called the Germazinov Doctrine. And the Germazinov Doctrine is essentially a speech given by uh, General Gerasimov, which basically stated, we're going to use a a hybridity of tactics and strategies um, in order to confuse and get our mission accomplished. Uh, So they bombarded uh, the Ukrainian Crimean information ecosystem. They engaged with the world through a different narrative, i.e. plausible deniability, and they eventually annexed Crimea. And they took notes from that. And around uh, 2014, they began to hire uh, what you would call as trolls, right? People who are, dissem- or people who are disseminating uh, certain kinds of information or they're sowing division. Uh, Peter Singer and uh, I think Emerson T. Brookings and several other authors um, make a notable distinction that the IRA were not trolls, that these were sock puppets. And I think the difference between a sock puppet and a troll is that a troll kind of um, encapsulates internet culture, which is kind of like, ah, that's just a guy making dumb comments, vice an actual paid state-sponsored individual that, so, so the way the IRA formulated was they, they began in St. Petersburg around 2013, 2014, that hired up to 1,000 individuals. And those 1,000 individuals uh, did several things. One, they developed human assets. They created specific groups that mimicked uh, specific um, social issues or activist type issues. So for example, they created a group called Black Matters and Black Matters 
uh, what was unique about it was the human asset development. So these, these sock puppets, they made several physical phone calls to individuals, specifically black owners of, of businesses to try and gain more information. And some of the black owners, black business owners um, ended up falling for, for this kind of uh, psyop, I guess you would say. Uh, some people didn't. But throughout every aspect of activism, whether it was from the far left uh, to the far right, the IRA created subgroups and essentially disseminated various narratives, various meme plexes, and it literally sowed division. While on top of that, you had Cambridge Analytica um, using psychographics to influence um, the population at large for the Trump campaign. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And so... And, and before that in Brexit. Right. So, so what most people don't know about Brexit was because uh, Russia was using gray zone tactics, they ended up bombing... Uh, uh, several locations within Syria to displace all these immigrants. And I think it was like 14 million immigrants, which led to specific European countries having to take these uh, refugees in. And with an already pre-existing weak infrastructure, it, it harbored all this uh, angst, anxiety, and rage. And so it also influenced... Um, Brexit. Um, so Cambridge Analytica was doing work in terms of that aspect and also the Ted Cruz campaign, which eventually led to the Trump campaign using uh, Alexander Nix, Chris Wiley, and Steve Bannon to do their right. work. And what they would do is that they would, they were just pretty much farming information. So like all those silly quizzes that people would take on Facebook that's later was determined that that's who was do they were behind a lot of those and that was just a way to just get inf just information of about users oh yeah 
So the Cambridge Analytica disclosed that, or Christopher Wiley did disclose that within a three month span, they had 50 to 60 million Facebook users um, uh, data points and a data point uh, or per individual, they had at least 5,000 data points per individual. And so that means that micro-targeting was that much more effective. Um, of course, Mark Zuckerberg and company downplayed that those companies or Facebook uh, did not influence the campaign. But that's hogwash because it did. And hence why we have so much polarization today. Which they downplayed the, they, they downplayed the Russians as well. And that's an important point to remember about all this is that the Russians are normally blamed, especially by people on the left for bringing Trump into office. Right. But the thing was, is that like, and you made an excellent point there, what they were really trying to do was to just cause dissension. So they would make pro Bernie Sanders memes. They would make pro black lives matters memes. And at, and another thing too, is that they would actually organize these, um, these protests and basically just stir the shit storm and, and have an opposing, an opposing party on the other side of the aisle. So they were just causing just, they were trying to just cause political turmoil. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what they did. And here's the thing. I think like, uh, so Facebook never really disclosed what the Russians kind of did. Twitter kind of did in a, in a recent report that's called Grafica. And it gives like this, man, it's like a hundred pages of like highlights from, uh, the Twitter sphere and like their analytics and what came of it. And I have some of those analytics that I can read off. Um, but so the IRA reached over, so the tactics and tropes from new knowledge says that they reached 126 million Facebook users, but other references state that they reached 150 million users, but they just weren't using Facebook. There was Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, mm -hmm. um, WhatsApp. Um, and right after the election, so post-election, um, IRA or at least bad actors um, shifted their focus to the alt-right. So instead of attacking all the groups, they mm -hmm. mainly focus on the alt-right. So now the narrative is white supremacy is the predominant threat to American democracy. And a large effort has been made from the Russian standpoint of view on that narrative. So since we were the victims of this mimetic war campaign uh, from Russia, is, is there a goal and have we kind of entered like a, a mimetic civil war now? I mean, it seems like uh, even though, you know, there's a lot of organic stuff now, it might've got a good jump start, but uh, the, a lot of the stuff is coming from domestic sources and it seems like they were really inspired and kind of, learn some of these methods from uh, what was being conducted. Yeah. So I'm going to say a couple of things here. One, the Russians and the American population haven't really figured out the psychological and uh, 
behavioral drivers to really cause an uproar. And I want to say this, let's just be thankful that only certain kinds of buildings and certain kinds of damages are being done. Um, if it was more strategic, it would be a lot more lethal. And a lot of Americans don't understand how easy it is to literally take a population off the grid and cause that much more harm. Uh -huh. and, and so that's one aspect of it. So that's kind of, that's kind of me saying that they did a good job, but not a, not the job that could have been done. And maybe that was the point. Um, I talked with Dave Metcalf and, a, and another individual named Nate Bocker, and they provide a lot of insight in terms of, you know, misinformation, disinformation, malign information, and, and these focal points is that maybe the point is, is that it was to bombard the ecosystem in order for it to become self-recurring. Yeah. And yeah. so that goes back to your point, Sirfiel, that these individuals kind of adopted, but also embraced this mind virus or these mind viruses and really hold it to heart and really think that they're in the right. And so they participate in disseminating more division, sowing more division. And it creates what you, you term a corrupted information ecosystem that's now exploited uh, by uh, tons of actors, I guess. Oh, yeah. And, and that's another driving point that I, that I make is that, you know, the metawar paradigm, or at least my understanding of it is that uh, every, every American, all 330 million Americans are now combatants. They are weaponized. They are disinformation agents. And the reason why I bring that up is that it's going to take a high level of accountability and responsibility for people to understand what is actually taking place and what this actually means if mimetic warfare and narratives are being used to the point where it does become surgical. And that's what we have to prevent here is that the moment it does become surgical, we're going to be in really bad shape. Could you elaborate on that? What you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take uh, the QAnon phenomena, for example. I mean, that's like the mother load of conspiracy theories upon conspiracy theories upon conspiracy theories. Just take a, take a segment from the QAnon branch if you were to properly infiltrate, send in an agent, whether it's a, a, a cyber agent, somebody, a troll or a sock puppet, you were able to disseminate enough narrative and enough memetics or at least memes to kind of give an emotional response, then you can practically create an operation where they could actually target, let's say, uh, an electrical grid, a military base, um, a soft target, uh, things that have like a, an old folks home really do harm where it would create or generate an even more fearful atmosphere. And that's what I mean by, by surgical. So in other words, they'd be turning those people on to their own country, essentially onto, onto its own infrastructure 
It's interesting that you say that because I've heard things like that. I've actually heard that type of thing come from the alt-right. That's what happened in uh, early 2020 with the whole coronavirus and the 5G. Uh, NPR did a, did a story. Uh, it was Bobby Allen who did a story where 5G conspiracy theories that were on Twitter um, mobilized people in England yeah. to burn down 4G towers. I mean, you, you, if you cut out communications, there goes your logistics, there goes your medical support, there goes your law enforcement. I mean, wow. what a, yeah, serious, serious consequences. Here's something that I'd like to kind of know is whether or not this has come into the private sector as well, whether or not these same tactics are being used by corporations. Because, you know, um, a few months ago, there was a very bizarre thing with Wayfair. I don't know if you remember this, but there began this like huge internet rumor that Wayfair was shipping. They were shipping uh, children in their cabinets. And my speculation, what almost was just like, what if that was possibly some one of their competitors just seeding that seeding that idea into people's heads. Yeah, I get your, uh, yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about gray zone tactics or uh, great power competition, everything is weaponized, everything from religion to UFOs to the phenomena. I mean, every aspect of American life is weaponized. And that's the point about metal. There is no turning back at this point. It is constantly being used, just like that example. So is is there any kind of theoretical um, way to uh, improve our mimetic health or, like, vaccinate us against disinformation? I mean, how do you think there's any, like, realistic thing that we could start doing to... Um, educate the public i mean i just i don't know how it could even start now yeah there is actually that's kind of one of the uh so everything for me begins with mental health so i work with combat veterans i'm a peer support specialist um i'm also trained in what's called resilience which is a kind of new uh mental health tool that's changing the landscape of how we we do certain kinds of things and activities, the way we treat trauma um, within certain communities. And so, and so what this means is one, I have to have a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, and that means that I have to constantly, at least to a point where I question, why am I having an emotional reaction to a particular thing? And that's the beauty about virtue ethics is that it allows you to have a framework but it's mentally gruesome. It allow it, it requires a lot of mental faculties. Two, um, you have to have the platforms that surpass psychographics and AI machine learning. And that's the mm -hmm. thing about cyberspace, man, and about the internet is that it has literally become purgatory. There is no forgiveness. And not only that, every individual screen is an individual experience. There is no more shared 
realities. There's no more shared experience. So everything that you're seeing on your screen is specifically meant for you. And if you're going to the, uh, bombard an ecosystem, you have to create your own operation. You have to create your own botnet. And I do have some theoretical aspects of how you can do that. But to operationalize this narrative, or at least memetics in the sense of being used for good, let me, let me give you a case study. So Major Prosser, uh, Marine Corps Major, wrote a paper on, on memetic warfare. And one of the very first uh, defense contracting companies, which was called 3M, used memes um, to get its, uh, its, uh, its uh, workers to produce and be more uh, efficient. And so this stuff can be used for good, okay? That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, you would have to specifically focus on your locality, so by design, you would have to run an operation by measuring bioregional viability, which means what's, what's your physical landscape looking like? What community resources do you have? Do you have any agriculture-based um, uh, projects within your community? Do you have anything that someone can replace this um, dopamine or dopaminergic hijack, yeah. right? And essentially, you know, I make the claim that we have around 20 to 40 years before we really go into a really major decline. That's what it's going to take is a 20 to 40 year plan in order to go ahead and neutralize or at least inoculate the American consciousness. Because right now, cortisol is through the roof and it didn't help that we're, we're still in a pandemic which is built upon pre-existing things. So, but I can, so to, to build on that, or at least share what I, what I have planned. So I'm writing my book for the operational community because they're the ones that are gonna understand at least the verbiage at first. But I do believe that we cannot escape hyper-reality, right? We have exponential growth, we have new technologies. What we have to do is we have to somehow find a way where we can have the right compatibility between our physical reality and then this digital landscape in order to go ahead and neutralize that. And so that means that you can create a hybridity of ritual-based kinds of therapies with biofeedback type therapies. So for example, Imagine if you were to create a kind of wristwatch or a kind of ring where you can measure, uh, you could read your own biofeedback, but you could also read, let's say, your life partner's biofeedback. And let's say you can create a ritual out of that where there is a certain kind of doctrine that you follow and the reason why you do that. One, the very same technology that you're using would be also helping you remain connected in a way that's productive, effective, and doesn't hijack your limbic system. But in order to do that, we have to kind of regress back to a kind of philosophical attitude about who we are as individuals. Mm -hmm. But we could use this technology to become more 
self-aware of how other technologies impacting us to kind of get a get a hold of it like someone would use like a, a fitness uh, app or something like that yes um, so that's one of the uh, so I had an opportunity to talk with some uh, marine special operations guys not too long ago and one of the uh, one of the reasons why I haven't really gone forward with this specific subject is because the 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 fear of being breached. So if you were to breach the data of, let's say, operators or people within this program, it could be used against them. And not only that, if you were to really, so part of the reason why I'm using the biofeedback is because it's also can induce psi. And with the tactical profiling and the kind of classes that I've had, you can also use that to build upon psi and so it kind of creates this uh, vulnerability for users. So data has to be encrypted somehow. And the servers that maintain that information also have to be protected against uh, bad actors. And so it takes time to develop that point. But yeah, essentially something like a Fitbit could be used, but it has to be encrypted. And there's an individual who can do it. The only problem is it takes money in order to do it. Right. And here's another point too. So since we can't escape our exponential growth or technological advancement, uh, Daniel C. Dennett argues that, you know, we can't completely kill, you know, if we were to look at memes as germs, you know, we can't completely eradicate all the germs. It would literally take the life out of, it would take the salt out of life, you know, because culture is a kind of salt to life. Yeah. yeah. So it's like damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah, especially a place like uh, the U.S. here where crazy ideas spreading around is kind of a part of everything. Um, and you it's don't an want American it. American pastime. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't want it to be too just, you know, sterile and... Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Well, well here, here's a hopeful point. So you know why mimetic warfare or narrative warfare and mimetic warfare so have worked so well and effectively in the United States? It's because we're an experimental democracy. Yeah, we're the only people who have been able to go this far and long without having complete government, you know, lockdown on our, our rights, our belief systems, our, our, the things that we love. And while it isn't perfect, it has given us enough opportunity to go ahead and do some good. And we have to keep working for that narrative. Fighting for those memes, for the positive ones. Right, right. Right, because you, made, you, made a, you make a good point that in countries that have state-controlled media, that it doesn't work as well. But since, you know, 2016, and it seems like for some of the material that you sent us, that it seems like that there's, that there's like now this way to like a way for us to catch up to this in a certain way, our, our military, our psyops divisions, um, are there any examples of something that could be going on now that, uh, might be directed towards other directed back at these countries let me let me share two things 
quick. So one, yeah, we're, we're, so that's the thing about patterns is they still, they tell patterns, tell stories of the past and everything that the United States has done thus far has been reactive. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we hear about it, our enemies are adapting. Um, and that's the evolution of tactics and, and, and war all the time. And so here's the danger. We are now creating a military case system that is becoming increasingly detached from the American population. And very much the same thing is happening with the American population. It has become detached from the all-volunteer force. When the civil military gap increases or widens, the inability to fight back against these kinds of warfare, these higher forms of warfare, become increasingly difficult. And the thing is, is that not even DOD has the right narrative to properly fight back. And that is one of the mission, or at least the goals to do this, is to get this to the operational community so that they can adapt to it. Now, here's the upside to it. Um, In 2019, every uh, armed forces branch has now begun to kind of create a cyber capability. And sometime in 2021, they're going to send these kinds of capabilities out maritime-wise, geographically, and they're going to hone in on potentially, you know, bad actors who are doing this kind of work. And that's the thing is that the American military cannot conduct cyber operations within the United States. Hmm. It would be, it's against the law. Yeah. But we've done it before. And a good case study of it is, is Operation Glowing Symphony. And it's how a joint task force with the NSA and DOD brought down the cyber caliphate of ISIS. And so we kind of have a theoretical framework and an operational framework to target uh, pathogenic memeplexes like ISIS and bring them down to a neutral point. But the problem is, is that there's still a lot of gimmicky aspects to that operation and the kinds of equipment being used. I mean, it, you know, so it takes years. So if the military is going to phase out a particular, uh, let's say a mechanical vehicle, like a, like a, they're going to be phasing out the CH 53s with the V 22 Ospreys Marine Corps wide, that takes at least two to four years Mm-hmm. And that's not including the tens of thousands of Marines that they have to train from the mechanics aspect of it to the flight aspects of it to the operations aspect. It is a very difficult thing to try to transition and adapt to these new kinds of tactics, but it is being developed. So we already know that the Russians and possibly other state actors are doing these warfare against us again now with the 2020 election we already know that this is happening um 
in 2016, there was something happened where the idea was that if Trump did not win, then they were going to, they were going to sow a lot, a lot of discord in this country. That was kind of their goal. That was their kind of contingency plan was to sow even more, probably get us to the brink of like civil war. And that's in that, that's in that report that you sent me. Yeah. So I've had this, (laughs) I've had this discussion. Um, The civil war would be very lame. No one has, (laughs) no one has, I mean, it's not like the current conflict that's taking place in Armenia um, or I just bought, I just Pakistan and Armenia yeah. where they're now using drones to, to essentially take out uh, particular uh, objects and drones capabilities are far and wide. Honestly, you know, the left versus the right, you know, I, I would hate to say this, but it would seem that conservatives have a lot more weapon systems and oh yeah, I, I think too. I think the real pra- the real patriots would would say no, no, absolutely not, not in this country. We have we have fucking fought and bled in too many fucking wars for it to go down because the IRA, the Russians, have focused their narrative on white Caucasian people and the alt right. It's not going to happen like that. So you think the idea is just a, a is a is a meme itself? The idea of a, you know some real American civil war. I guess the boogaloo is like their catchphrase. Things like that. I would never say never, but to the point where it's a full blown, you know, civil war 2.0. No, it's not. What, what you're going to have is individual actors or specific populations probably do some harm to other populations, right? So if there are protests, that's what's going to happen, what we've seen so far. Um, but no, no, no Civil War 2.0. Um, and federal forces would, federal forces would hone in on that. I mean, I think at that point, knowing our, uh, I want to say NSA capabilities, but at least our cyber capabilities yeah. that we could stop any kind of militia doing some kind of harm to another group. But pushing, but pushing that idea and pushing that meme is, uh, I guess, pretty useful for whoever's trying to sow uh, division in in the U.S. So. So this is this is what I say to that. The invasion is not physical, it is psychical. Okay, so first off, like if you were to like China, for example, China owns major metropolitan properties. They own a large portion of Hollywood. They own a large portion of agribusiness. They've created the Belt and Road Initiative where they're literally creating uh, new economic feedways back into China. Why would they want to waste? No one, those people have been suppressed for so long. They don't want to fight us. Yeah. This is to undermine U.S. influence. 
so that they can take over strategically, yeah. economically. It's about markets. The same with Russia, too. It's just about um, kind of encouraging a U.S. isolationism or something like that that allows them to grow their sphere of influence that they believe they're entitled to from history. Oh, yeah. And, and Russia's in decline, man. They have a huge population uh, decline uh, yeah. issue taking place right now. Uh, their oil fields, you know, Russia's a, a, a gas and it's a gas and light company with the standing army. Uh, it's, it's throwing Hail Marys right now at us. Um, but we're also developing new capabilities that can undermine uh, core superpowers. You know, I hate to say it and it's, it's sad, but the weaponization of space um, is one of those hopes where we gain the upper hand. The, you know, and if you really study like the Marine Corps Futures Directorate, uh, there's several case studies. So this is how DOD has been operating for the past uh, decade or so. They hire creative writers or strategic group think tanks that focus on science fiction. And they hire these people to write out potential futures. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm doing with my book as well is an influence tactic to make it seem like these are very real things and they are, but they're good. They're good memes. So if you look at the Marine Corps futures directorate for 2030, 2040, there's a scenario in there that very much looks like what the United States is currently in. And that means that we're kind of focusing on the inward uh, degradation that has taken place while superpowers are undermining our influence and taking over markets. And there's a lot of individual businesses um, that have enough capital right now that are fighting to deter that scenario. Um, the impending aspects or at least the kind of things that I would worry about in terms of the future um, is mainly focused within water, food, and energy and uh, overpopulation of metropolitan areas. And here's the thing, fellas, when you talk about narrative warfare, mimetic warfare, psychological operations, you got to think of it this way. If I want to target a specific population that is unpredictable, that is chaotic, and that would do the most damage, you know what population I would target? What would that be? The young adult or what the Marine Corps features calls youth bulges, mm -hmm. right? They're the most hormonal. So that's who we got to protect the most out here is that age group. And so I, 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 you know, my day job is working with middle schoolers and high schoolers in order to educate them about these kinds of realities and assist them in cultivating good mental health practices within the school system. And so that is one aspect in which we can kind of assist our fellow countrymen, but you can also do the exact same thing to the core superpowers. It would just take a lot more effort in terms of undermining them 
with what they're doing to us. Well, I'm glad you have some some hope, and uh, I'm glad there's uh, some some kind of prescriptions uh, that we can that we can start on uh, because it's pretty uh, looks pretty bleak. It was seeming pretty dire there for a second there, but uh, you actually uh, do seem to have some hope for the future, so that's good. You know, that's a part of. So I'm a, I'm a U.S. Marine man. I don't. You know, I have four tours under my belt. Um, there's no such thing as defeat yeah. in my in my playbook or in, in my literature in my head. I don't stop until I'm freaking dead. So, you know, this is a, a lifelong project that will continue. And I, I just I simply will not accept defeat. I will not accept that my fellow Americans or my countrymen and my country women fall victim to these very, very bad things. Um, yeah. It's not going to happen, not on my watch. Amen, brother. I like that. Thank you. I like that a lot. So uh, we, we mentioned it briefly, but the Thomos Project, uh, can I t- to talk about that just a little bit where they, people can find that? Yeah, if you go to www.thomosproject.org, uh, you'll find the website, um, Thumos Project, Thumos meaning energy, spirit, and honor. Um, it was founded by my mentor, Mark Mosier. Uh, Mark served, oh, I think, a little over 30 years within the Marine Corps. The National Guard um, spent most of his time within the infantry field, reconnaissance and forest reconnaissance. And the initial inception of it was to kind of assist transitioning veterans out to, um, you know, civilian life. But now that I've kind of taken over it, we're developing the framework where we can utilize what I call agrotherapy and the domains, or at least the, the administrative aspects that built us up from, so there's a lot of training that went into guys like me and a lot of other veterans that have very similar practical applications and building one's resilience, we're cultivating one's resilience and mental health. And we do that by combining it with, with um, some kind of agriculture-based project. And so that's kind of the initiative that's undergone thus far. Um, took a big blow when Hurricane Florence hit. Um, we were trying to grow our own uh, hot sauce and I lost quite a bit of money when Florence hit, but we're slowly but surely getting back up and back into the fight in that, in that kind of an aspect. Very, very nice stuff. Um, also, you have to tell me, because we talked about this a little bit when we were chatting, how you got the name Lawani. Lawani. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you that story. Um, so right after my good friend, uh, Sergeant Garrison was killed, I kind of got put down for about a week, a week and a half. And um, when they released me, they attached the British commando with an army psyops team and then a special forces Afghan uh, group called Tiger Forces. And so for like the first couple missions, I had to do these like silly missions where I had to go find uh, teachers for this uh, uh, 
school that we were supposed to build up for these kids. Um, one day, um, we had transitioned onto what's uh, a route called Route Bat. We named all our routes after animals. And uh, on Route Bat, we found this particular hut. And the guy happened to be a teacher. So the Army PsyOps guys and the Tiger Forces um, had gone in the back to drink Thai and uh, break bread with the guy. And so I set up security cordon in the front. And the guy, uh, Ryan Whitlock, who I'm still friends with, who's in the UK, uh, he starts, we start talking and he starts telling me the story about how he's in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. But as he's talking, he starts taking off his helmet, man. And I tell him, I was like, hey, man, you don't want to do that. And as soon as he takes it off, <laughs> this sniper from about 200 meters away fires around and it misses his head. And all you hear is like, oh, shit. And, you know, next thing you know, we're all online just blasting uh, this, this little area. We call them beaver dams. And beaver dams are these kind uh -huh. of like homemade um, resting areas with shade. And so the sniper team had set up, this Taliban sniper team sat up like 200 meters south of us. And um, so soon as, you know, we uh, returned fire, um, my, my second team leader or my first fire team leader, because at that time I had taken over the squad, uh, has, we break up into two uh, maneuver elements. Uh, which is called a, a satellite element or maneuver. So it's two teams that are separated with like a distance between like 100 meters or so. And we start to pursue the Taliban that had taken shots at us. Uh, so the Taliban had kind of, so their tactics were to shoot at us, like harass us, and then evade to catch us into the open. And then Karizi Sayyidi, there's a lot of farm fields that are open. And as soon as we hit this specific area, the Taliban uh, sniper team just opened fired on us. And, you know, the way we operate, the way we operated back then was very, very unusual. We didn't take cover. We didn't jump down to the ground. We just, we, if you didn't get shot the first time, then you just keep on moving, keep on running and gunning. And so I just start shooting across the field and you see to the left, the army psyops team, the tiger forces literally eating dirt because they're getting shot up and I'm yelling at them to get the fuck up and move. And they're just looking at me like I'm freaking crazy as I'm firing over their heads. Uh, eventually we end up pursuing the Taliban, but they end up getting away. And these guys, man, they were messed up. Like one of the army psyops guys twisted his ankle um, they ran out of water, so we had to return to base. Uh, so later on that night, we had to do the follow-on mission with the PSYOPs team. And so right before that mission, I had set up a security cordon. And Ryan, uh, the British commando, had come up to me. He's like, Josie, Josie, <laughs> the, the, the guys, they want to they they call you something. They, they want to name you something. And I'm like, yeah, what's that? And they're like, they want to call you Lewana. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, it means crazy. Because you're fucking crazy, man. <laughs> you're fucking crazy the way you guys did all that. And I was like, we told you, fellas. And so that's how I, I got that name, Lewana, crazy man. <laughs>
Cool. Nice. Nice. Good story. Good story. Uh, Jose, tell people where they can contact you. Um, this has been excellent, man. Thank you so much. But where can people contact you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook under uh, Lewane Herrera. Um, or if you go to my website at Jose Herrera, 03xx.com, um, you can send me an email and I can write you back. And that's where you can find me. Excellent. Excellent. I just wanted to thank you for coming on. And uh, I think uh, you you really uh, provided some perspective that that people need and uh, can help them understand the current environment that we are all in right now yeah absolutely agree with that 100 percent. it's a it's a really crazy crazy world and people really need to understand this as well so all right jose stay on the line for us we're going to close out this section we'll be back to close out the show as always on conspiracy normal Welcome back, guys. That was a great interview. I know that we had originally were going to speak about the meme, our memetic warfare, which uh, we did, and we did at length. But uh, it was also fascinating to get into the whole like psi aspect of it. And I had no idea, even though we really kind of met Jose through David Betcalf, I had no idea that he uh, knew Diana. I did. Um, okay. I did. I didn't know that he actually was in her department. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I had. I had no idea. So it's interesting that we did this interview um, because over the last uh, couple of days, I watched a documentary. It's actually a four-hour documentary called Agents of Chaos. And it was about this subject. About the uh, IRA, the Russian, or as they call it, the Russian troll farm. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend that documentary if you really want to understand this and what went on. And today I had a look at some of the material, one of the materials that uh, Jose sent us, which was the tactics and tropes of the Internet Research Agency. Yeah. And I looked at a lot of these memes that they put out. And did you rec- I can remember did you recognize seeing, them? <laughs> I, I can remember seeing quite a few of these, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was there was one that I saw that was uh that was on there a lot it was like uh one of those like you know if you don't love Jesus don't share if you do love Jesus share I saw yeah, one of yeah. those a lot of stuff that plays on religion uh what I was really surprised to see was that there was a ton of stuff that had to do with like black lives matter type of material yeah, I remember um, seeing a few of those and the more like the Afrocentric theme stuff too. Um, and yeah, I, I remember seeing a couple of those; they were familiar. Um, but the all the like right wing patriot ones, I recognized a whole lot of those. 
yeah. even though yeah, I, wrote, I recognize a lot yeah. of those too. Um, which is, what does that say about the friends we have on Facebook? Or, so, or fr- friends we had on Facebook. <laughs> friends we had on Facebook. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was just a ton of them that I did recognize and that I had seen and kind of, you know, honestly at the time I'm always kind of suspicious about these things because they're so, they're so simplistic and they just boil things down to just like one simple thing. I mean, that's what a meme is essentially, but like, you know, a good example of one of these, like kind of the Afrocentric ones was you got a picture of like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And they're like, you know, superimposed on like little girls and dresses. And it says, do not vote for oppressors. And then it has yeah. a picture of an African-American. Uh, I guess he's a teenager or a young man. It says, I won't vote well you. So this is just essentially, you know, encouraging. They were just trying to get it, Trump elected. To, so they didn't want to not, to not vote. Yeah. Right. Right. That's all that. That's all that shit is. And you're seeing that kind of the same thing now. Um, too. I'm not this. This one was funny with the the Bose art one. Uh, that was interesting. Uh, so, but you're seeing that same type of thing now. That um, they're really pushing like third, trying to push that whole third party candidates. And I actually went and voted today, and uh, Kanye West is on the uh, <laughs> Kanye West is on the ballot in Tennessee. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, well, it's free country. <laughs> it it is, it is, but it's obvious what's going on there, you know. And yeah, here it is—the picture of Jesus. It says, "Like if you believe." Keep scrolling if you don't. It's got an X on his face. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that. I remember seeing the one uh, with um, Yosemite Sam. It says. I was banned from television for being too violent. Like and share. If you grew up watching me on television, have a gun and haven't shot or killed anyone. So these type of just appeals that are just to like, and, and they're, and they're using those, uh, those just to just show how they have, uh, are appealed to so many different types of groups uh-huh. that it's not just one type of thing. The second amendment is my gun permit. That was another one. So, and then the, there's an interesting one on Texas secession or Texit. So, yeah, which is something that comes up time after time. What I really liked about what Jose said tonight uh, about Russia in particular, though, is that these are the um, it's the dying gasps and uh, of a. a society that's demographically declining politically declining um and Mm -hmm. from the left a lot you get this uh image of this big powerful boogeyman and uh you know it's good to think that it's not necessarily that uh we're not dealing with such a powerful adversary obviously right right yeah, I mean, they have, they're not exactly like, it's It's not like our sun is setting and theirs is rising. That's the narrative that they are pushing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's not necessarily either that they're the good guys or they're the defenders of of Western civilization or or, or of Christianity, either. So, yeah. So, anything else you want to? Other points you want to you want to make or? Yeah, it's just um, having you know we we've talked a lot about uh, more historical conspiracy aspects of. Um, fourth generational warfare and things like that and how it's played out, how it does relate to, to the now, but to have someone with so much experience, you know, in actual theater of war and understanding of the evolution of war and how it actually works on the ground, how it's working on the ground now that it's this information war has been brought home. It was just real, uh, it was very informative. I hope everyone gets a, gets a lot out of it. Yeah, same here, same here. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Um, as always, Patreon, if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash conspiranormal, YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast, that is there. Please leave us a five-star review. We don't get enough of those on iTunes. That really helps us as well. You know, the usual podcast spiel. And, uh, guys, we're going to be back with uh, some more interesting guests on YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.